Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. You're in Matthew chapter number 6. You're in Matthew 6. And I want you to, I want you to turn again to a few places this morning. Uh, if you will, turn to 1 John. And so that's all the way near the back. Uh, not the Gospel of John, but you have 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, 1 John. The first one, and I want you to maybe put a marker at the fifth chapter there in 1 John. And then I want you to put a, a marker perhaps in Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter number 8. And that'll probably do for now. There's other passages I'm going to make mention of, but there's a few of them I, I just want you to be ready to turn to, and I think the first of those will be 1 John. And... Um, We'll, we'll move towards that end. Matthew chapter 6. Look at our text this morning found in the sixth chapter of this prayer, model prayer, if you will, the prayer for the disciples. The scripture records, note if you will, verse 13, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, we've looked at these preceding verses over the last several weeks. We've kind of divided them as the thy petitions and just in keeping with the memory tool, the my position, the petitions. The thy petitions are found in, in verses 9 and 10. You have a hallowed name, our Father, which art in heaven, our, hallowed be thy name. Verse 10, thy kingdom come and then also thy will be done. And the focus of those thy petitions, and to truly understand them, is that last phrase of verse 10 where he says, uh, in earth as it is in heaven. You wanted to see a distinction between the two of what should be and what isn't. The fact is, in heaven, God's name is supremely hallowed. The fact is, in heaven, God's kingdom is ever-present there. The fact is, in heaven... It has always been the case that his will is always de facto done. There's no free choice as it pertains to the will of God in the presence of the Almighty God. But if you contrast that with earth, you find a different matter. You find so often that individuals will not seek the will of God in their life. The 14th Psalm speaks of it in this wise. It says that God looked down upon the sons of men to see if there were any that did good. And he looked upon them and he said, There is none that doeth good, no, not one. In the third chapter of Romans, in the epistle to the Romans, Paul, by inspiration, seizes on this very thing and says, There is none righteous, no, not one. Isaiah said, They have all gone astray. They have all turned aside. And throughout the scriptures you can find this. And the fact is... All of humanity has never been in a place where they all would seek the will of God and the hallowedness of his name and the desire of his kingdom on earth. It is a narrow way, and few there be that find it. And you and I, as we would seek to pray in this particular model that the Lord laid out for his disciples, it ought to be characteristic of our prayers to desire God's work in heaven to be done on earth. And there's very practical things that we've covered in that particular area. The second section deals with the my petitions. The thy and the my petitions. And there could be four or there could be three. 
But nevertheless, there's several of them, and we've looked at a couple of them up to this date. For instance, it's found there in the scripture several weeks ago, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. And that's not just simply talking about a meal. When you look at bread throughout the scriptures, it is an emblem, if you will, of all the things that you need in life. And of course, I'd be remiss if I did not remind us of the fourth chapter of Matthew where the Lord said, man shall not live by... You know, so often we talk about needs. I don't mean to re-preach the message, but we talk about what our needs are. You know, in some regards, what people need has changed as society has changed. I mean, I can remember the day where cell phones didn't exist. And we could make a rather muddled confusion about them, whether they exist or not, or rather, I should say, whether they're needed or not. But today, as a practical matter, there's something of a need. Uh, it's a little bit of an embarrassment to me in one regard that I spent more than half of my life without Internet. And it amazes me that uh, how... how intertwined it is with the fabric of life. Um, I was listening to a legislator some time ago and he said it really is, internet really is a need. And I looked at him and I thought, wow, what about food and water, man? That's a need. And he made a statement I thought was pretty impactful. He said, try, try arranging things medically without internet. I thought that was an interesting statement he made. Sometimes our perceptions change. The Lord here, when he's talking about bread, it's the greater whole of what you need in life. But you know, rarely is it when we talk about needs and wants, etc., rarely is it that you hear the believer say, what I really need is just to be alone with God. And yet that is the preeminent need. Thy petition, give us this day our daily bread. He moves on, he gives you another one. He says, we spent some time on this the other week, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You might look at that and say, well, he's talking about credit cards right there. Mortgage payments. Now, in the greater sense, we had a debt. And in reference of our debt, it was vast. It was overcoming. You want to talk about the phrase being underwater? That's what our sin debt was. And yet... Like Paul to Philemon, so many years after this was penned, Paul would write to Philemon and say, whatever Onesimus owes you, put that on my account. And when I arrive, Philemon, I'll settle it. You know, in keeping, that's a good picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ did for the sin debt of his saints. What did you owe? Well, Romans told me I was the fifth chapter, an enemy of God. Now, I would not. I never held up a sign, I hate God. I never went on marches where I distributed some type of vileness towards God. Matter of fact, from my estimation, I wouldn't deem myself to be an enemy of God. And from my estimation, there's no one present here this morning that I would estimate you to be the enemy of God. But here's the great truth of the matter. I'm not the judge. I do not decree man's goodness and man's evil. You know who does? The king of all the earth. 
And that God looking down upon the pinnacle of his creation, which was humanity, said, I find them all to be my enemies. He did not brush with a stereotypical sweep of a brush. We do that sometimes. In describing all men or all women or all this, we often stereotype, put people in category. Or didn't do that. He de facto stated, I know all men. I know all of their hearts. I know all of their minds. And they're all filthy. They are my enemies. They are godless. They cannot help themselves. But God commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, he took all my debt and paid in full. And might I say something? He didn't take all my debt up to the point where I asked him to save me and receive that marvelous gift. He didn't take all my sin debt up to that point. You know what he did? That wouldn't be good enough. I've reached the point in my life where I have been saved longer than I was unsaved. I've been saved close to 25 years. I was about 16 when I accepted the Lord in February. I accepted the Lord as my Savior when I was about 16 years old. God did not pay all my sin debt up till the time I accepted Him. There's a great probability that I've committed more sins since the moment I was saved than I had prior to my salvation. God forgave me, and through Jesus Christ, He paid all my debts of all my sins that I would ever commit against His righteousness and goodness until the day I see Him face to face. You say, I can't believe that. Well, let me ask you a question. When He died on the cross, how many sins had you committed? I wasn't around. I hadn't committed any of them. He paid them all. He'll take about a marvelous... And by the way, can I go back to Philemon? And, and I'm going back, I'm in my mind, you know. I'll pay it all. And anything else he owes, I'll take care of all of it. That's what God did. And then he says with it, and it's key in this passage, we looked at it the other week. He said, now, having seen the forgiveness that I have given you. It's been a pretty great thing, isn't it? There's some sins that some of God's children struggle with, and they never get the victory over in life. And yet, how is God's forgiveness towards them? And I must say this. It's an important theological statement here. It's incumbent on us to recognize that He has to continually forgive us. It's incumbent upon us to realize that He had to pay our entire sin debt. You know why? Because if there's a stained blot upon me, I have not all the righteousness of God and I cannot be in the presence of the Almighty God. It was in a great reality as we look from the perspective of a holy God, it was incumbent upon Him to pay all or nothing. And that's why Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we keep running up a debt just because He has the ability to pay for it all? Oh, may it never be. God forbid, the scripture records. And then he pivots from there. And he says, now seeing the grace of forgiveness that I have given to you, notice there that my petition, as we forgive our debtors. That's why a few chapters later, old Paul, Peter rather, Lord, brother, offend me. How often shall I forgive my brother 70 times? All oh, the answer is forgive him like I did, Peter. 
Peter, how many times have I forgiven you for the same offense? Peter, how many times am I willing to forgive you for the same offense? Peter, how many times am I willing to forgive you despite the singular fact that I've provided all you need to live victorious in this life? That's how I want you to forgive others. The Lord said, disciples, when you pray, pray with this mindset. And then we come to ours for this morning. There in that 13th verse, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Before we examine this text, I think there's some important truths regarding prayers that we need to comprehend. One of the fact, well, in fact, instead of me telling you what it is, let's go find what it is. If you're there, turn over to 1 John. Hold your place in Matthew. We're going to come back. We get this idea, and I want you to understand this, that any prayer that God's going to answer, he wants to answer. We would reference that as his will. God is not going to be talked into something. You know, I, I dearly love my family, as I'm sure you do. And I dearly love the, the children that I've got to know here in, in our ministry. <clears throat> and they're not here with us this morning. <clears throat> but have you ever been nagged by a child? I mean, they just, and not what they're asking for, not that it's wrong, but it's repetitious. And woe be to the parents some children that allow their children to know that something exciting and wonderful is about to occur in a week. My soul, you know what every hour is going to be filled of? I mean, I'll be honest, when some of our children were little, we, we did, anytime we were going to talk about going to Grandma and my parents' house, Grandma and Papa's, or we're going to go to over here or anything, we didn't tell them until the 11th hour. Why? Inwardly so full of excitement, they're going to ask and ask and ask and ask. And to a negative sense, sometimes, sometimes children get to the point where they keep asking. They want something and you don't want them to have it, but they keep asking and asking and asking. But it's against your will. Sometimes we as parents give in. And I hope that wouldn't be the case for sin. That it would be something would be against the word of God. But I want to tell you something. God's not going to give in to sin. He's never going to answer a, a prayer that is outside his will. Because he can't. That's right. God has limitations. Sometimes you'll see bumper stickers. Don't put God in a box. But you don't have to. He did it. And it's called the word of God. And you and I have no right to assume anything of God that he has not explicitly said about himself. Don't you say that God is like something unless he said that he is like something. For who hath known the mind of God? He's revealed it to us. We have no right to assume something about God he hasn't said. And so when he's highlighting these prayers, the disciples, it's important to know that he wants them to pray this way. But think about our text this morning. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us not. So is God saying that sometimes he's going to lead them through temptation? 
It's important to know some things about prayer. You're there in 1 John. I want you to look in chapter 5. And I've highlighted these. Verse 14 and following. And this is the confidence. If you write in your Bible, you circle that word confidence. And I, and I would use a, a ruler or something, but point out an arrow to the side and write this four-letter word. H-O-P-E, hope. Earnest expectation. That's what confidence means. And the reason you as a child can have expectation is because God said, I'm going to do something. And anytime God said he's going to do something, he's not slack concerning those promises. That's what gives us the confidence. He's going to tell you this. This is the confidence that we have in him. That if we, his children, ask, what's the phrase? Anything, he heareth us. I'll do it again. This is the confidence we have in him. That if we ask anything, he heareth us. What am I leaving out? That's an important prayer principle. That's why prayer and Bible study go together. If you want to be an effective prayer warrior, become a theologian. Study the Word of God. Study the Word of God. I'm not telling you to go to Bible college. I'm not telling you to go to cemetery either. I'm saying become a student of the Word of Truth. Dig into it. Because when you've dug into the Word of God, you'll know what the will of God is. And when you know the will of God is, you'll be an effective prayer warrior in that area. He says in verse 15, And we know that He hear us, and if we know that He hear us, whatsoever we ask, see the preceding verse, according to His will, we know that we have the petitions we desired from Him. You know what He's saying? You pray in the Lord's will, He's going to take care of it. So there's a number of things about prayer. But what is it about this will? Because we, we think regarding prayer that we have confidence that if we pray according to His will, and this ought to be a, a truth, if you will, that we regularly affirm in our hearts. But not only should our prayer be within the boundaries of God's will, so should be our own lives. In Ephesians chapter 5, we're told, Be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. In 1 Thessalonians, we record, This is the will of God, even our sanctification. Let every one of you abstain from fornication. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he pens regarding the will of God. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So when we look through this, if it's within the boundaries of the will of God, God's for it. You're in Romans? You're in Romans? Look over in Romans for a moment. Eighth chapter. Now the eighth chapter, we know often from the 28th verse. The 28th verse in the eighth chapter. And we know that all things work together the good of them that love God, those that call according to His purpose. We're familiar with that. It's probably one of the most familiar passages in the 8th chapter of Romans. But it is not, sadly, the only passage 
in the book of Romans nor in the 8th chapter. I want you to draw your attention in verse 12. Now, chapter 6, sin in the believer. Chapter 7, law in the believer, God's commands. Chapter 8 is the Holy Spirit in the believer. But look at your eyes here in verse number 12. Therefore, brethren, equal believers, that's what he's talking about here. We are debtors. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Seems like, seems like we might have heard that word this morning. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if we live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, ye shall live. What's it telling me? To everything in life, there's a binary choice. Good and evil. Holy and unholy. Righteousness and unrighteousness. Godliness and ungodliness. Spirit and flesh. Life and death. There's not three choices. There's two. Now notice... For as many, verse 14, is led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. This is a plurality expression of believers. It's a titular exclamation of what you are as a child of God. You are a son. That means heir. And he's going to allude to that in the very next verse. He says, For we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but receive the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now, look at verse 16. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. All right, so if I live to the flesh, it's death. I live to the Spirit, it's life. The Holy Spirit confirms to me the assurance of my salvation. My desires to walk in truth is another factor that brings about assurance to my salvation, at least an acknowledgement of assurance to my salvation. He says in verse 17, And if children, then we're what? My future home brings about assurance of my salvation. And heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ and all God's people said, look at the next phrase. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Now that's a turn of a phrase, isn't it? I mean, if I was to start off this morning and say, hey, I want to tell you something. I'm a descendant of such and such person. And you would be like, wow. And uh, you know such and such person has publicated or published rather in a publication that I am their descendant. You would be like, yes, I know I read that article. It was on the front page of all the papers. And you know, I would say, that that person is worth an extreme amount of money or has an extreme amount of prestige or fill in whatever descriptive of wonder that you might. You would not expect the next phrase of my mouth to say, if I'll suffer with him, I'll be glorified with him. Would you? No. It goes contrary to my F-L-E-S-H. You would expect that to be from our human aspirations 
yes, I read all of that and I understand you're getting it on Monday and I'm your very best friend. But that's not what the text indicates. Look in verse number 18. Paul writes, for I reckon. Now, some old Southern folks will use this word reckon and it means kind of depends. I reckon it possibly could be. But, but that's not what the word means here. If you circle it, draw a line out to your margin. It means I account. I take stock of. I'm doing a tabulation. I reckon, Paul says, that the sufferings, if I was to add them all together, all of the debt of suffering that I have in this life, that it's not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He said, if I could chalk up every difficulty I've ever faced, every trial, every testing, every proving that would possibly be, and I add up all the sums thereof, and then I look at all that I have had as it pertains to being a son of the Almighty God and an heir with Him, friend, they're not even in the same zip code. That's what he's saying here. I would rather have Christ than all of the prestige this world ever has to offer. That the glory that shall be revealed is far grander in its majesty, far bigger in its breadth, extensive in its promises than anything on this side of eternity. And then he's going to go into a trilogy of suffering things before he finally says, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? You know, when we're considering prayer, God's going to answer those within His will. Equally, I'm to live within that will. And sometimes, and sometimes, part of the will of God in my life is suffering. And yet I need to set my eyes on the great picture. Of albeit perhaps the single greatest focus that I should have in this life. And that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all. There it is. <clears throat> We're in Matthew chapter 6. He says, lead us not into temptation. When you look at this word temptation... We've got to ask ourselves, what is temptation? And if you've studied your Bible much or read much of it, you find that it's interesting how that's used. So let's take a few moments and look in the Scriptures at what temptation is. Let me tell you first off that temptation as a word is a neutral word. From our English perspective, we look at temptation as a negative sense. And in scriptures, it is sometimes used as a negative sense. We would not, from our diction and etymology, look at temptation and say it's a positive word. But in scriptures, it's sometimes a positive word. For instance, Abraham was tempted. But Abraham was not tempted to sin. In James, 
temptation can sometimes be used that way. In 1 Corinthians, they were tempted. There's two different meanings of it. And what makes it positive or negative really comes to the person engaging in it. At its root, the word temptation that is used here, or tempt if I abbreviate it, it really, it really has this idea to test, to prove, to try. And it makes a vast difference who's doing the testing, proving, and trial. How many of you ever had an opportunity to take a test in your life? Driver's test, medical board test, legal test. You took an arithmetic test when you were three years old. <laughs> you were a genius, you know. Um, the reality of a test, it's not a test if it can't successfully p- be passed. I uh, had a math teacher that I dearly appreciated. But he had this one annoying thing that I did not like about him. I now realize what he was doing. And I like me less not recognizing earlier what he was doing. But he always wanted us to strive for our best. And he would say part of that is following instructions. So we go over chapter 9 and throughout that he said, you always ought to look ahead on the chest, or rather not on the test, but on the studies. You always, always look ahead, look ahead, look behind, review what's there, but know where you're going to. Look in chapter 10 for a little bit, study all this, the test will be on chapter 9. And I would study. Now, those other students did a far greater job. And we'd go back and we'd study the previous chapter. We plowed chapter 9. And rarely did anybody ever look ahead. I want you to know on every test, you know what one of the last questions was? It was one of the first questions in chapter 10. But can you imagine if there was a test, number 9? And all the information didn't come from chapter 9, it came from chapter 29. And for a teacher becoming angry with you because you didn't know the topic and material of chapter 29 when you were only on chapter 9, every one of us would cry in our heart, what? It's unjust and unfair. You see, that's God's testing in one sense. God tests us chapter by chapter. And there's not a chapter that he's testing you on that you can't pass. That's what's meant by 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He'll make a way of escape. On the other hand, there's Satan's testing and temptation. And his isn't about proving you. It's about disproving you. It's about tempting your flesh. And you'll either be victorious, you pass God's test, or you'll succumb to your flesh and you will have proved Satan's test. In some regard, this is where Job is in Job chapter 1. He goes under a great test, doesn't he? What did God know about him? He can pass. What did Satan think about him? He's never going to make it. You look at how Job was tested. The pride of life. The flesh. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. 
All of that's attacked. But at the end of the day, Job trusted God. When you think of this phrase here in Matthew, lead us not into temptation, you've got to understand that there is a test that God will place all believers through. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Look over in James, if you will. Hold your place in Matthew, but turn to James. Someone rightly has commented that James is Christianity in overalls. One regard, it's so very simplistic. So what we've learned about temptation thus far is temptation's a neutral word. What determines its essence is who's doing the testing. Now, look in James chapter 1 and verse 13. I want to speak for a moment about those initiators. Look in James chapter 1 and verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. There's a qualification on this temptation. Why? Next phrase. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. And the context of this is evil. Friend, you don't ever have to worry about God testing you with things that contradict with his word. He ain't going to do it. Anytime there is a desire to do that which is evil, solicitation for evil, that's what we'll call it, God's not within a square mile of that place. But you know, in Matthew chapter 4, and I'll give you the, the reference, Satan is referred to as the tempter. Oh yes, God is going to put you through difficult times and circumstances. Let me give you, I mean, there's any instances you could use. You could use the matter of health. You could use the matter of employment. Do not good Christian people lose their jobs? Yes. Do not good Christian people sometimes lose their health? Good God-honoring, Bible-believing, don't they lose their health sometimes? Yes. Those can be looked at trials. But they also can be times of great temptation to evil as well. Why? Go through some physical suffering and evil, uh, go through some physical suffering in this life and see if there isn't temptation to do evil. My mind immediately is thinking of Proverbs chapter 30. The writer pens, Give me neither riches nor poverty. If I get riches, I'll deny God. I get poverty, I'll curse Him. Feed me with food that is convenient. And that interesting statement. There can be a temptation, a loss of health, going through a difficult time, and you look and profane God. You go through a time of difficult health, 
walking away from God. Time of difficult health to become one that will be angry, bitter, falling in all type of malice. It, is that what God would want? No, but that is what the tempter would want. A godly person could lose a job. Somebody just fire them. Most states are at-will states. They don't have to keep you employed there. That could be a test from God. Surely he's promised that he would provide all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. But it's also a time of great testing in the matter of temptation. Is that not the time that we could curse God? Is that not the time that we could engage in illegalities? Is that not the time where any evil thing could occur? Yes. And friend, those are very two juvenile references, but really the expanse is near indefinite. God never tempts with evil. But that is not to say that he does not test or try. Notice the reality, if you will. The reality is this, that God allows temptation in the sense of trials or difficulties for our faith to be tested. Why? Because a faith that is never tested is a faith that should never, ever be trusted. God wants your faith and trust and your growth in Him to be constantly increasing. And there's only one There are several, but there's a very tried and proven track record that God has used in regards to suffering and difficulties. Why? Because in my flesh it dwelleth no good thing. And if my flesh and the desires of this flesh are tried by the Almighty God, and I turn in faith and praise and thanksgiving to Him, my faith in Him will grow. You know, a lot of folks have this idea that your faith is tried with blessings. It's not. My flesh is grown with blessings. I mentioned those blessed children, but part of the reason they lend to so many great illustrations is they are an innocent mirror of what in often in one sense are the things that we would least likely like to admit. Have a little birthday party for one of the children. You ever watched how easy it is for them to slide into thankfulness because they keep getting? You ever notice that? Same for us folks. Human nature did not change. But there's a tested and tried way in which God will bring the proving of difficulties and how thankful that often makes us. What's His will? Well, His will is for me to be thankful. Often the difference between the two is the choices that are made. One choice is when God tries is when I lean, as we looked in Romans, to my spiritual man. And I, through the Spirit of God, trust him. So I've lost that job or I've got that bad health or whatever it might be. 
I secured all my hope on him. The other choice in that moment is to lean to my fleshly desires. To make sure that I get what I should get. And I have failed that testing. The reality is what's so interesting is I think as you look in Scripture, they both can happen at the same time. I think of Matthew chapter 4. Meaning being tested by God and tempted by the evil one at the same time. In Matthew chapter 4, and it'd be worth our time, I'll give you the reference to cross-reference it with, uh, with the other synoptic gospels, but in Matthew chapter 4, the Lord is in the wilderness and He hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. And then He's sent. The scripture is sent into the wilderness to be tested, to be tempted of the evil one. And what's interesting is 40 days, 40 days in the wilderness would beat one's flesh and make you do things. I'm telling you, folks, if we went 40 days without eating, you'd eat stuff you hated and be thankful for it. There was a hypostatic union. He was 100% God, but he was 100% man. His flesh was infinitely weak. And he's tested. It's interesting, Luke chapter 4 and verse 2 gives the idea that really the testing led up to that. Meaning there was a lot of testing going on during those 40 days and culminating with what Matthew records in the fourth chapter. But he had communed with his God. He communed with the Godhead, I should better say. And when those three record temptations are made, each of them he answered with the same strength and might that you and I can. He did not invoke divinity to overcome temptation. He did not answer Satan's tempting challenges according to his divine person. How did he answer them? Same way you and I can. It is written. That's the same opportunity I have when I am faced temptation. I think in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look there with me if you a moment. Hold your place in James and Matthew, but look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is an interesting one here. First Corinthians chapter 10 is a warning, a passage of admonition. First Corinthians chapter 10, he starts off, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. He said, how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the seas. All were baptized into Moses and the clouds and the sea, did eat the same spiritual meat, drink of the same spiritual rock, that rock, which was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6, now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. I want you to think about something for a moment. If I was asked a question, why weren't they in the wilderness? Some of us would say, well, because they were being judged of God. There's truth to that statement. But if we were to take and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, there's an interesting light that God put upon it. He said, I've taken you into the wilderness that I might prove you. That I might test your faith. 
You see, even during the wilderness wandering, he had given them opportunity as a collective whole to enjoy some of the blessings and wonders as it was to be a child of God. Yes, they were in there because they were being judged in a sense, because they had been disobedient. But he did not, listen, friend, would he not have been righteous if he had smitten them on that very day that they had sent back the unbelieving ten? If he had smitten them all but Joshua and Caleb and their descendants and, and saved all those 40 years older and younger, if he had just saved those and smitten all the rest, would he have still been just? In his mercy, he gave them 40 years. You know what their life was like for 40 years? Their shoes never wore out. Their stomachs never went hungry. They were never in true, imminent, outside danger. Listen, they had been as a whole rebellious towards God on multiple occasions. And God said, yes, you're not going to enter into the land. You're going to wander 40 years. But listen, I gave you that 40 years as a test. They could have course corrected. Granted, the consequence is still there. They wouldn't have entered into the land. But their existence within those 40 years would have been remarkably different. And yet while God's proving them, what's Satan doing? Tempting them. Look in 1 Corinthians. It comes down through this passage, particularly my eyes would fall for time's sake in verse 10. Neither murmur ye. As some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Rather than being thankful, which was the will of God, they murmured and complained. Rather than being compliant and submissive, they rebelled. And all of those sundry plagues that God sent their ways over those 40 years was a direct result of a consequence to a sin that need not have to occur. Over and over again, their faith would not increase because they would always answer out of the lust of their heart and succumb to the evil one's temptation instead of proving the God of their salvation. They chose sin and transgression instead of the promise of obedience. Now look back to James. I'm not going to be able to finish all this this morning for time's sake. What's the promise? Lead us not into temptation. Look in James chapter 1. Maybe the next couple months I can put this together a little bit. James chapter 1, there's a promise regarding temptations. I've already alluded to several of them. Look in verse 3. Knowing this, oh, back up to verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into what? Now remember, temptation is a neutral word. Context is going to describe whether or not it is positive or negative. Whether it is a testing from God 
or rather it is a solicitation to do evil. And the general thing, when difficulty comes, count it up to joy. That's one of the first things that I would have you note about temptations of this life. They are as a whole to be addressed with a level of joy. These opportunities that God brings that, that, that allow us this binary choice of living to the Spirit or dying in the flesh. Of overcoming by faith or succumbing by lust. James is saying when you come at these divers temptations, man, count it up to joy. Why? Let me give you about seven reasons why. I'll be quick. We've preached on this before, but I think it's well worth the reminder. I'm to count it up to joy, number one, because my endurance, patience, if you will, is being built. Look in verse 3. Knowing this, the trying of your faith, the word trying, think temptation. The proving of that faith, what does it do? It worketh patience. Thy friend... Patience and faith are kinfolk. They're wonderful together. I won't be honest, you read through the scriptures, starting at Genesis, go to Revelations, few things happen imminently. Meaning, the given promise and an imminent fulfillment. Why? In Genesis chapter 3, you find one of the first promises the seed of the woman that would save humanity. When was that filled, fulfilled? Was that on year five? Year six? Oh, my soul had been nine to 4,000 years. And Isaiah chapter seven, along that same prophecy, there's another one given said, a virgin shall conceived. His name should be called Emmanuel. Should be with his people, etc., It'd be over 600 years before that would occur. One of the wonderful things about times that God allows testing in your life, it's an opportunity to develop your patience. Long-suffering, your spiritual stamina. That's why I cannot for the life of me hold to this idea of prosperity theology that so often exists where, friends, God's always going to make your life healthy, wealthy, and wise. Is contrary to the truths of Scripture. But what isn't is one day He's going to be glorified in you. That's not contrary to the Scripture at all. Build your spiritual endurance. Number two, what does it do? Why should I address it with joy? I should address it with joy because my confidence will be built. Look at verse 4. Let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect, entire, complete, Wanting nothing. I like the systematic thought of all of this. You grow to be more like Him. My confidence is increased. If God gave me the strength to endure this testing, this next testing, which is larger, guess what He's going to do? And the one that follows, and the one that follows, and the one that follows. Systematically, as I endure my faith, and my confidence in Him is what faith is, increases. Look at verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, 
Let him ask of God, give all men liberally, abradeth not, it shall be given unto him. I would submit to you that another reason to address the trials of this life in a sense of joy is because it will greatly enhance my prayer life. Well, Lord, why is this happening? God said, if you lack wisdom. So that tells me that the trials of this life give me a great opportunity to commune through prayer. Sadly, sometimes our prayer is not a life, our prayer life is not what it ought to be because we have not allowed, my mind won't comprehend this to the point. Sometimes our, our heart's not willing to learn the topic of suffering. But if you want a deep prayer life, sometimes you've got to just go through some difficulty and see God show Himself strong. It's almost academic. Now go on here. Why should I address it with joy? I look in verse 8. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Reminds me of the coast grew up about an hour and a half from the coast. And on a rare occasion, we go out there and I like to stand right off of the tide. She'd wash up on the sand and she'd pull back. And you know what happens to that sand under your feet? Cause you to shift around. That's the idea of double-mindedness. Know which way you're going. You know, testing coming to your life, it opens up the understanding that it allows us to have traction and stability. Stability. We could drop our eyes down to verse number 9 and 12, or 9 through 12. He's going to talk about two brothers. The brother of low degree and then the rich man in verse 10. Both of these are believers. Yet the fact that simply engaged is a time of testing works with both of them. Why? A time of testing allows us, regardless of where you're at in life, to have a time of spiritual focus. And then I might would move down later in the verse to verse number 12. An ultimate reason for joy is the future glory that will be attained. Notice what he says in verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. And again, this, this passage here through verse 12, he's not talking about a solicitation to do evil. That's why verse 13 is there. He's talking about testings and proving. God said, I want you to bring glory and honor to me. And I'm going to help you do it. You need my help. Because left to yourself, you won't do it. And so in order that you might, as a son of God, one day be glorified with me, one of the chief means that I'm going to do is to grant you some trials in life. We got some woodworkers here. We got some married woodworkers. Let me pick on those folks for a minute. Can you imagine, fine craftsmen that you are, and you're going to make a fancy uh, wooden thing, if you will, 
for someone you dearly loved. But you didn't want to put that piece of wood through any trial. You didn't want to cut it. You didn't want to sand it. You didn't want to fashion it. You didn't want to plane it. What kind of gift would that be that you would give to your loved one? I guess you'd just give them a tree. Friend, that silly analogy, I'm trying to illustrate a point. God can fashion through you something that will bring him glory while the ages roll on. But in order to do so, he's going to sharpen it. He's going to sand it. There's things he's got to trim off. We call that the process of sanctification. And there is a promise of future glory in verse 12. Just like there was in the earlier passage of Romans chapter 8 we looked at. And yet I would submit something to you. And this will take us back to Matthew chapter 6. And I'll close. Here's what I would submit to you. This whole list, and perhaps next week we'll look at this again, but this whole list of things that we should approach as joy to the proving the temptation that is from God, not evil, not solicitation of evil, but the testing and the trial. Here's this long length of things that is promised to you and I. And it does occur. Turn back to Matthew. Why then does he say in verse 13, lead us not into temptation? The fact of the matter is this prayer is in some regard should be in the heart of a Christian an unsatiable desire to follow in whole attention to Jesus Christ. That ought to be our utmost desire. And listen, if we were to do a show of hands, I'm not going to do that. Do a show of hands. How many of you want to bring glory to God in this life, our hands would all go up. How many of you are doing everything in this life right now to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Every hand boy would want to go up. But the Lord knows you. He knows your frame. And He knows something terribly about the creation that He made. Given a perfect environment, given a perfect relationship, You don't have it in you. That's the problem. Oh, preacher, how dare you talk about me like that? Oh, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about your granddaddy. Adam was in a perfect environment. Adam had a perfect opportunity. All his needs were met. And when temptation come, what did he do? He folded like an old cotton t-shirt. Our prayer ought to be in our heart, lead us not into these trials and temptations. That ought to be our prayer. Why? Because our singular focus reverberating back to the opening prayer, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Let us forgive, meet our daily needs. Lead us not because we would walk with thee and be as lenient and following and yielding to you as ever as possible. But we can't even remember to pray every day.
We can't even get past grumbling and murmuring. I can't get over this. I can't get past this. And as the tender father, he says, I know that child of mine. I know how to fix that problem. So our heart's prayer, lead us not into temptation. God's sovereign reality, I'm going to test you and prove you so that you'll bring forth glory like into gold. This prayer, this prayer should be one to which we give great attention to. It's a petition to the Almighty God to look over our eyes, our hearts, our ears, our mouth. If you will, to make a hedge against the presumptive sense of security and self-reliance we so often immerse ourselves in. None of us would be so foolish that we would ever count ourselves to have apprehended in this life. Yet without trials and proving, we won't grow with firm reliance to glorify Him. Lead us not into temptation. Let's stand to our feet. Father, Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time, 